Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Full Service Radio. Well, hello out there, beautiful ones. I'm Paul Wharton, and I've missed you since our last hangout. But I'm happy to be back here at the Line Hotel in D.C. at Full Service Radio with my producer extraordinaire, Jack Ansley. What's up, Jack? Hello. Welcome back. (laughs) Actually, welcome back to you. You've been kind of all around the world. Yeah, I have. It's true. (laughs) So I've been a busy little bee. As many of you know, I'm prepping my second book. Who knew? I'm like a real author and preparing for a summer of travel and adventure. So in my first book, Pulling It All Together, Essential Style Advice on Being Beautiful, Confident, and Most of All Happy, I talk about the importance of finding your own unique style and wearing it with confidence. So my next book is all about cooking and entertaining, but I wanted to put a little twist on it. You know, I love to cook. I've hosted a cooking and entertaining show before and several holiday specials, where I cook, so I wanted to do a book where I could cook with some iconic names in television, film, music, media, you know, people that you'd be interested in hearing from. Here's a clip from my Home for the Holidays special with Patti LaBelle, where Patti talks about her love for cooking and how she learned to cook as a little girl. But one room that I know, grown men cry. My shoe closet. Where you burn right my shoe closet. My kitchen. Right, right. Your kitchen. <laughs> See, cry. that's one room where you play no oh, games, right? I can never play in the kitchen. Okay, here you go. Okay, so after I put the cabbage in with the oil, it starts burning. So you don't want it to burn, so you add water. I was born to be a chef or somebody who could just fry some chicken and born to be a singer. Mm -hmm. So I love singing more than I do cooking, but my cooking is phenomenal. I I mean, I can make everything. I'm blessed with my mother and father. I would watch them as I was a child when they would cook everything from fresh fried corn, watch how they did their potato salad and their macaroni and everything they did, I learned, but I do it better than they did. Before they died, I said, I did that better, didn't I? I did that. And my mother said, yes, sugar, yes, sugar. Oh, I love it. Yes, sugar, yes, sugar. I mean, don't you just love Miss Patty? How could you not? How could you not love Miss Patty? The best. I make her over the rainbow macaroni and cheese. It's so funny. That was in one of her first cookbooks. And I started making it like at Thanksgiving and Christmas. And then all the family was like, ooh, y'all better have JR's macaroni and cheese. Because my family calls me JR because I'm junior. And at a certain point, I decided to say, you know what? I got to admit something. It's actually Patty's over the rainbow macaroni and cheese. <laughs> But on my holiday special, she challenged me to her recipe. She was like, do you really know how to make it? And I just ran down the complete list of ingredients. Um, so, yeah, definitely we connect there with the food. Um, so really, in keeping with my personal challenge to produce projects that feed my soul, I want to do this book because it's not just something to do for money, but it's really something from the soul. And that's what I like about that. What do you think? Yeah, we need that. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So Miss Patty, she actually has a new jazz CD. 
Have you ever heard it, Jack? No, I have not. It's called Bel Homage. There's a song on there I wanted you to play. Oh, yeah. It's a nice cover, too. Nice cover. Here we go. This is Peel Me a Grape. Yeah, let's see. Peel me a grape. Crush me some ice. Skin me a peach. Save the fuss for my pillow. Start me a smoke Talk to me nice You've got to wind me And dine me Don't try to fool me Beat you So that's Patti LaBelle's version of Peel Me a Grape from the fabulous Bel Homage jazz album when her ex-husband, who was her manager, came to her um, and said, you know, Patty, I want you to do a jazz album. She says, me? Jazz? What? But the album is spectacular. So I've been in a really jazzy mood this week. The National Endowment for the Arts, NEA, every year honors up to seven jazz musicians with Jazz Master Awards. The National Endowment for the Arts Jazz Master's Fellowships are the self-proclaimed highest honors that the United States bestows upon jazz musicians. The award is usually given late in a performance career after they have long established themselves. So I was lucky enough to attend the NEA Jazz Masters Awards at the Kennedy Center for my second year in a row, and it was absolutely thrilling. Stanley Crouch is a man that I've met many times. When I moved to New York as a young 19-year-old aspiring entertainer, I became friendly with people like the former editor-in-chief of Essence Magazine, Susan Taylor. And Terry Williams, the first black female mega publicist who at that time represented Bill Cosby and Eddie Murphy, all the big names. George Faison, the original Broadway choreographer of The Wiz. These people were much older than me, but they became my friends. And through them, I was introduced to the world of jazz and went on to meet jazz artists and influential people in the music world. And Stanley Crouch was one of them. Long before my time in New York, Crouch was an aspiring jazz drummer. Together with David Murray, he formed the group Black Music Infinity. Many years later, in 1987, after having moved from California to New York, he became an artistic consultant for Jazz at Lincoln Center program, joined by Wynton Marcellus, who later became artistic director in 1991. Here's a bit more of Stanley's story, as told by the man himself, his friend Wynton Marcellus, and bassist Christian McBride, and a few other friends. When you hear... Jelly Roll Morton singing Stars and Stripes Forever. And he said, I think the way he did it was something like he says that they, instead of saying, do dee da do dee da do dee, he said, they said, epo debo do debo do do dee do dee, epo epo pipa do dee do dee da do dee. That's it. That's it. When you hear that, you know what that is. I met Stanley in 1979. I was 17, I had first come to New York, I was playing in McKell's with Art Blakey, and he came up and started trying to tease me and say I, was, I couldn't play. And he said, come to my house, and uh, I want to talk about this. I said, okay, man, he lived in the village. I went to his house, it's just nothing but books, books and records. I said, man, who is this guy with all these books and records? And uh, none of which I had read, of course. I first became aware of Stanley in the mid to late 80s. Uh, as a young man growing up in Philadelphia listening to uh, Winton and Branford Marcellus. And I remember buying 
all of uh, Winton's recordings at that time, and I see all of the liner notes are written by Stanley Crouch. And I remember thinking, man, who is this, who's the Stanley Crouch dude, you know? Using all of these big words and things like that, and I'd never heard anything like that or read anything like that on a jazz record. We've been friends and, and hanging out with each other for just about 50 years. I think of Stanley as, as uh, one of my larger-than-life friends. Stanley Crouch had a, uh, a real all-consuming passion for so many artistic modes of expression, including poetry and dance and theater. He was equally impassioned about all those things. Stanley was, West Coast was in Los Angeles, first a poet and a writer. Then he got into drums, a drummer playing avant-garde drums. He always hung out at the clubs to hear what people were playing. He was always at the Village Vanguard. He was always at the Village Gate. He was always at the Blue Note. If there was somebody he liked or someone he was curious about, he was going to go sit for every set and listen intently to every note. And, uh, and then he would give his, you know, give his grades out at the end of the set. And I used to call him the, the doctor of connections. He just connects everything, one thing to another thing. What jazz does is it, it uses democratic means to achieve utopia. See, that's what it really is about. See, that when somebody says that those guys are smoking, they're really swinging, then that's utopia, that's not democracy. See, you use the, you use the democratic idea of people coming together and creating together and working together and each individual's value contributing. But what the objective is, is utopia. That is the point at which everything is perfect. And, and, and that's what the groove is in jazz. It's the moment at which everything is correct. I think Stanley Crouch, as much as any jazz advocate that we've ever had, um, made his writing into a a very profoundly moving musical instrument. I would always read Stanley Crouch's criticism. E even if for nothing else, I always knew I was going to be shocked by something he said, you know. Obviously, he's one of the most unapologetic people in the entire world, you know. You know, I feel very strongly that, that Stanley Crouch's contribution to Jazz at Lincoln Center as one of its co-founders and enduring you know, mentors of Jazz Lincoln Center has, it's been one of the crowning achievements of his, of his life in this music. He put his whole life on the line for the music. The music is his life, and he's contributed so much uh, through his writings and through his, his, his actual advocacy in terms of showing up, being present, and being supportive of the music. I can reconnect with my entire family, all of my neighborhoods, everything I've ever done or imagined. Whether I hear any jazz band heat up and put the pots on, showing how well it can struggle for joy together. No art says I want to live better or more forcefully than jazz. Yep, that's definitely Crouch. All right, that's the man, Stanley Crouch. Definitely check him out if you've never heard of him. You are in for a treat. And I want to send out our thoughts of healing energy and love to Stanley. He wasn't able to attend the awards at the Kennedy Center as he's not feeling his best, but we're praying that he has a full recovery. The show was really amazing, and sitting next to me was um, a music manager who actually managed um, Abdullah Ibrahim. And 
he was another, he's a South African pianist and composer. As I said, his name is Abdullah Ibrahim. And I wasn't familiar with him, but I was absolutely taken by his story and have since done some research on his work. He's truly extraordinary. During the apartheid era in the 1960s, Ibrahim moved to New York City and, apart from a brief return to South Africa in the 1970s, remained in exile until the early 90s. Here's a bit more of his story from the man himself. And so jazz music, from my perspective, is the highest developed form of music ever in the history of the planet. I was born in uh, Cape Town. South Africa in uh, 1934. It was a suburb of Cape Town. It was one of those uh, uh, apartheid enclaves where we were allowed to stay. It was initiated with a with the slave trade. We were we were robbed of our of our traditional belief system. It was a some of the jazz music that I listened to was was Willis Conover, Voice of America. But our local, our local stations also, radio stations also play, play jazz music. And then I got, uh, being a pianist, uh, interested in, in boogie boogie. So I listened to Albert Ammons, uh, Pete Johnson, Meatlock Lewis, boogie boogie. And that's how I developed the left hand. So we uh, grew up playing in dance bands. Uh, but what they did was, uh, was take those Irish, Irish reels and put an African beat to it. <laughs> Tuxedo Junction, we played, what else did we play? Uh, Song of India, Glenn Miller, Joe Liggins, uh, and Basie, and our own traditional music. And sometimes you, you couldn't differentiate whether it was a, a, a Klaza or a, or a Swana Riff, or whether it was Basie. No, it was, it was that close because it had this call and response. Keep him okay to him. So he was, he was like inspirational for us. And he was the one that said to us, listen, well, I understand I play Mozart, you know, but we have to look at our own, our own music here. So we started researching our own traditional music. And then we realized the, 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 the complexity of it. And it was accepted in the communities and we played so many concerts. And then somebody organized for us to record. And it, it was quite unique because uh, recording studios were, were, were controlled by, by white, <laughs> white producers who told us what we need to play. So Zazipus was, was a breakthrough for us in many ways, politically, musically, socially. We knew what was going to happen in the end, that we were going to be liberated. There was no doubt about that. And then the ANC came and asked me and said, will you play a more active role in this and, and really take, take the music to the world? We were playing in this little club in Zurich. And it was great for us because we, I met all of the, the, the jazz musicians who came through there. So we were just about, just about to close down when, when Satima walks in with Ellington and his whole entourage. So he came and said, okay, in two days' time, uh, you, you're all coming to Paris. You're coming to record. I said, what? <laughs> so we go to Paris. And I think this is also something that I, uh, I learned from, from, from Ellington. He actually writes the song for the musicians. You have that dynamic of the musician actually being comfortable in his own. And then if you put it all together, you get the unique sound. And Ellington was a master at that. 
I mean, it's such a wonderful and great uh, self-enriching experience when you speak to the masters, and, you know, and, and, and understand the, the, the road and the path that, they, that they've taken, the selfless path. I was invited to play at the Nelson Mandela's uh, inauguration. And that day at the event, the whole world was there. Our music was healing songs. This was our, our, our duty and our role in, in society. And this is why jazz music does. It really gives you that insight into, into yourself because you constantly challenge yourself. And jazz music opens you to you. It opens you to yourself. You know, it's so interesting to me because I was not raised around jazz. You know, Jack, were you? No, not really. I found it later in life. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's never too, too um, you're never too old, but to teach an old dog new tricks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because my parents, they loved the kind of the classic R&B and those types of things. And of course, I saw things like a Miles Davis record every now and again or something like that. But it's really interesting. Um, definitely, I would suggest to anybody that's that's interested in learning more about jazz to check out the National Endowment of the Arts. That was Abdullah Ibrahim. Um, they do this event every year in Washington, D.C. at the Kennedy Center, and it was just phenomenal. So there was another jazz artist that attended the NEA Jazz Masters, and she's actually sitting in the studio here with me today. Her name is Jillian Upshaw. So Jillian Upshaw is a ninth grader at Woodrow Wilson Senior High School. Before she could speak, Miss Jillian Upshaw... (laughs) Imitated the rhythm and cadence of musicians singing, later fashioning brooms and yardsticks into guitars, holding brushes as microphones, and banging on pots and pans as drums. After seeing their three-year-old transfixed by Gabby Wilson singing and playing the bass guitar on the Today Show, her parents enrolled her in acoustic guitar lessons at Melody Music with Mr. Mike Bailey. When she was strong enough, Miss Upshaw added the bass and electric guitar to her repertoire. Hmm. Sitting behind a drum kit with sticks in hand, however, is her true passion. Initially learning from her instructor, Mr. Drew Franklin, Miss Upshaw has played with several bands, including the Woodrow Wilson High School Jazz Ensemble and Combo and the Wilson Drumline. She was selected as Outstanding Soloist at the Loudoun County Jazz Assessment for Middle Schools in April 2016. Miss Upshaw has also become an annual favorite unofficial guest performer at Morehouse College Homecoming Festivities. When she isn't playing or composing music, Miss Upshaw is also an award-winning theatrical performer. Jillian's performance as King Louie in The Jungle Book kids earned her a scholarship to attend the 2016 Junior Theater Festival in Atlanta. Miss Upshaw aspires to attend either Spelman College, Berkeley College of Music, or the Juilliard School. She plans to become a professional drummer, performing on the world stage, collaborating with other artists, and producing music. And, you know, Jillian and I connected recently as she was competing in DC Capital Stars Talent Competition. And she actually has some good news because our girl came in first place. First place, baby. So I want to welcome to the show Miss Jillian Upshaw. Thank hey, girl. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so this has been a pretty exciting couple of weeks for you. It has. 
So you first came to me. We'll talk a little bit more about how you how you know. I know your mom through mm-hmm. mutual friends of ours, and um, you had a big competition that was coming up. Tell us a little bit about the competition, how you got involved, and what was at stake. Well, the competition uh, was DC Capital Stars. It is a high school um, nonprofit organization to put um, high school students from um, 13 to 18 into um, college. So um, I was supposed to win $10,000. That was like the scholarship money. Mm-hmm. And so um, I got into it uh, by jazz band in Woodrow Wilson High School. Um, I guess an ambassador came and just, you know, talked about the program and I just applied. And my mom didn't even know anything about it. Like, I didn't tell her. Um, I guess I just put my address on there, and then they sent, like, in, in, in the mail. And then she's like, you know what? We have to write an essay. I'll help you with it. And so she was really supporting with all that. And so, um, you know, I got into a semifinalist. Um, and then after that, you know, I got to as a finalist. Um, and so... It was it was really nice. Like the Kennedy Center is such a big stage. Yeah. Like it was just jaw dropping. Um, when they heard that I was the winner, I was just flabbergasted. Really, it was it was it was amazing. So how did you decide what to play? Because that was a big thing. I think I heard yeah. from some of the judges that they were amazed that you took on such uh-huh. a big song. So tell us about that decision. Well. It wasn't originally me playing Spain, actually. I think I was supposed to play a song by Gabby Wilson, her. Um, And then they were like, you know what? That's not really showing your talents that much. Let's try something else. And so I I picked the song Cantaloupe. Mm -hmm. And it's a really nice R&B song. You know, I really like R&B, funk. And they're like, you know what? You know, let's, let's let's not pick that song. Yeah. I was like, why? Well, I really like it. <laughs> Sounds like an episode of American Idol when they're yeah. like, you know, that's the wrong song choice. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> and then, you know, I think I just played a Latin beat on the drum mm-hmm. kit. And then Mr. Ricky, um, the director, he was like, wait, do you know the song Spain? I was like, uh, I've heard the Stevie Wonder version. He's mm-hmm. like, do you know the Chick Corea version? I'm like, no. And I guess like the practice, um, he just asked me, you know, just practice it for the rest of the um, practice, and I just played it, I guess. Wow. Yeah. So talk about being proactive. So you took it upon yourself to get online and do some research, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you entered yourself into this. And how many kids were in the running for this competition to win the scholarship? Whoa, okay. So I'm pretty sure it started out with, like, 200 kids, mm-hmm. and then when, it became, when I became a semifinalist, there were 40 and then after, you know, the finalists, it became 10. So, wow. Yeah. So 10 of you all competed the big day of the event. So I'll tell you. So Jillian's mom um, is a friend of Nicole Venables, who's a friend of mine. And, I've, and your mom was kind enough to come to some of my book signings. Mm-hmm. And I'd met her in a few places. And, um, and they reached out and said, you know... She's got this big competition coming up, and we want to make sure that her look is fabulous, so would you consider (laughs) styling her? And I'm like, well, you know I don't really do that. (laughs) (laughs) Because by the end, you know, it's so funny, people that don't know me, 
like I start so early in the morning, even if I've been out the night before, I yeah. start like really early. And so like by four o'clock, I'm almost comatose. I'm like, don't plan for me to do anything after five o'clock because <laughs> I'm like not there. But I said, you know what? I want this girl to shine. And so what did you think about that when they told you you were going to come and uh, we were going to do this styling session? Well, I mean, I remember like I was getting new clothes and, you know, Nicole knew about the competition and she's like, oh, I forgot to tell you, but um, we got you a styling session with Paul Wharton. I was like, wait, who's Paul Wharton? (laughs) And I looked him up on Instagram and was like, oh, he's verified. (laughs) That's funny. So, okay, so the verification helped. Yes, yes. (laughs) But we had a great time. You came to the office. You were open. Um, you kind of, the same way you kind of know your musical style, you had a pretty good sense about, you know, yeah. what you wanted your your look to be. Mm-hmm. And what is that to you? What what does the aesthetic to you mean, like, going forward in terms of how you want to portray yourself as an artist? Does it have any, any weight there? Wait, what do you mean? What you, the way you want to put yourself out into the public Mm -hmm. because you know you have a musical style and I think I heard some of the judges say that yeah um so in terms of the way you want your look your clothes that you wear your hair your makeup all Mm -hmm. the things that we talked about how important is that to you now that you are getting on the main stage and you're performing in places like the Kennedy Center and Mm -hmm. you're going and we'll talk about this you shadowed Terry Lynn Carrington at (laughs) NEA Jazz Masters so how does that full package kind of play for you? Well, I definitely wanted to show my personality up on the stage. Um, you know, it wasn't just going to be like a normal day at school where I would just wear like sweatpants and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely wanted me, you know, to shine, you know, because, you know, drummers, they're usually not the star of the show, you know. Mm-hmm. They're usually in the back, you know, carrying out the tempo and stuff. So it was really important to me. Um, to not be in the shadow of the band and just to show like my talents and you know focus on me right now you know I'm the star I'm gonna get you know my two minutes of fame right now and And it worked yeah so when they decide and announce that you are in first place and you won what exactly uh I won ten thousand dollars ten thousand dollars lunch is on you kid hey Jack we getting lunch we can a 14 year old to treat us to lunch (laughs) They got ten thousand dollars, man. Caviar, anything you want. <laughs> so when you heard that you were the winner, what happened then? Oh my gosh! Like, I seriously didn't think I was gonna win. I was like, if I was gonna win, I'd be the youngest, like ever to win, like in the twenty years of DC Cap. Very cool. Like, um, you know, be a freshman, like. You know, there are all these seniors and juniors and sophomores. It's like, it's it's a little freshy, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I I was just like, wow. You know? That's fantastic. Yeah. I I was just surprised. You know, it was like, I I cried. You cried. Yeah, you earned it, though. Yeah. So one of your uh, mentors, Terry Lynn Carrington... Um, who we had actually talked about in the styling session because I had met her many times through a, mm-hmm. we have a mutual friend. Um, you were able to shadow her at the NEA Jazz Masters. For those people that don't know of Car- Terry Lynn Carrington, tell them a little bit about uh, Miss Carrington. Okay, so Terry Lynn Carrington is a famous jazz drummer. Uh, she's been on the scene since like the 70s. She's like her 
dad knew all these musicians and she kind of like shadowed them in some way and like she's not no Sheila E mm-hmm. she's herself which right. I love about her um, she is a professor at Berkeley College of Music mm-hmm. and she's just like one of my idols really she really is yeah, yeah I'm she's great so what was it like being there we talked a little bit about the NEA Jazz Masters um, awards the other day what mm-hmm. was it like for you that experience at the oh Kennedy my Center God. I try not to act starstruck <laughs> because like I mean, the only person I knew, like, in the Candy Center was Terry Lynn Carrington. And so just the fact that I was going to meet her was amazing. And, like, I was going to get, like, VIP access <laughs> um, it was great. Like, I tried to act, you know, calm and stuff. But, like, the nerves get to you. You're nerve-wracking and stuff like that. So it's like, you know, what, what can you do? So the more... I mean, wait, no, let me go back. Um, I remember when I was, um, like, the first hour, I think I was there. Like, I was just sitting there. She was directing, doing her own thing. And then she looked up to me. She's like, oh, you're the drummer. I'm like, yep, yep, I'm, 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 I'm the drummer. <laughs> yeah. And so the more I got to know her, the more I was comfortable. It felt like, you know, old friend you knew. Sure, yeah. yeah. So what did you learn in terms of that experience, having just come off that Kennedy Center stage mm-hmm. and being triumphant in your own competition and then now mm-hmm. seeing someone who potentially you could have a similar career? What mm-hmm. did you learn from being that close to Terry Lynn Carrington that, that day? Uh, I definitely learned that, you know, this is what I want to do. You know, I learned how music, I mean, musicians go on in daily basis. Um, like what they do, um, how they get ready, you know, like doing makeup and mm-hmm. you know, all that stuff. And like stars are just like normal people. They're literally <laughs> stars. Like, they're just like you yeah. and me. Yeah. Yeah. Because like Terrence Blanchard, like I didn't know <laughs> that he was that famous. And like he was like, hey, I'm Terrence. I'm like, whoa. Yeah. And then like apparently my stepfather was like a big fan of him, you know. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know. <laughs> and you know they're just regular people like they're doing just regular their, people yeah job job database yeah. so you're 14 years old you've done all these great things what do you see for your future i think your parents talked about how you started on all these other instruments and now you yeah. are doing really well um being a drummer what do you see for your future in terms of school where you want to live and mm-hmm. what you really want to do well i definitely want to go to college first mm-hmm. um preferably uh, Berkeley College of Music, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, then I want to get, you know, my master's. I want to go to graduate school. Um, I definitely want, you know, to be a musician. I want to travel around the world. You know, I grew up traveling to different countries and all that stuff. And when I see, you know, on YouTube, different um, people like Kendrick Lamar, you know, Kendrick Lamar's drummer, you know, they aren't necessarily the star of the show, but, you know, they're a part of it. And Absolutely. So, yeah, and I I want to do that, you know? Like, they pay for the royalties and stuff like that, so you don't really have to have, you know, a certain place to live because you're always traveling. Mm-hmm. So that's why I want, like, a penthouse in New York, you know? <laughs> maybe a house in L.A., maybe a house, of you course. know, in France, you know? Just just those little things. Just, yeah. the, just the little things. Yeah. Just the important thing. Yeah. Well, I think you are doing an amazing job. You are inspiring so many other kids and we are definitely going to 
continue to watch you. Where can people find your music? Is there anywhere online? Oh, you can find okay. Your music? So you can go on Instagram on jellybean underscore drummer. Um, I also have a Snapchat. <laughs> I made it when I was younger. It's Lego Hunter ten twenty seven. Um, and then I also have a YouTube channel, but I don't really post on that that much. It's just Jillian Upshaw. Um, but I preferably, you know, post on Instagram. So very cool. So back to um, some of the fashion advice, some of the things we talked about. You know, my book is essential style advice on being beautiful, confident, and most of all happy. It's pulling it all together. And so I guess the final advice I had for Jillian on her special occasion that can go for all of you is, you know, I want you to wear and enjoy all of your clothes. Fashion should definitely be fun and make you feel good about yourself. Don't Mm -hmm. save fabulous pieces just for special occasions. Enjoy them now. Even when you want to chill, you can throw in a little sparkle. Right, Jillian? Mm, Yep. (laughs) Shop for quality, not quantity, and try not to be an impulse shopper. You'll be overloaded with unwearable items that don't do anything for you. Remember, keep it simple, focus on fit, comfort, and be true to your own style. Yes, multiple snaps to that. (laughs) Ain't that the truth? Thank you so much, Jillian. Thank you. You are fabulous. So listen, you can listen in on this. Something very interesting happened yesterday. My friend Shonda Wallace, who if you go on my Instagram at Paul Wharton Style, you can see a lot of the adventures of Paul and Shonda. But Shonda called me yesterday with some serious blues about her son Bryce turning 16. (laughs) So it was so interesting that I asked her to make an MP3 with her thoughts so that I could share it with all of you. So I want people to listen to what Shonda thought about her her son turning 16. Check it out. So I literally woke up yesterday morning in a panic a bit of a panic I ran to the mirror I looked at myself and you know everything looked to be together all my parts and pieces were in place but yesterday morning I officially became the mother of a 16 year old son and nothing about my life says I have a 16 year old I don't know it's crazy I mean time flew and I just I went and I stood over him. I scared him a little bit because he was trying to sleep, but it was 5 a.m. And I stood over him looking like a whole crazy person. And I just stared at him sleeping. He he did wake up and I startled him, but I scared him because I'm just sitting there and I'm looking at him. And this dude is wearing size 14 shoes. He's like 6'2". He towers over me at this point. And everything is just so different he's such a respectable nice sweet beautiful handsome young guy but it does not feel like it's been 16 years since i labored for 19 hours with this kid and he's such a calm spirit and such a normal kid he's a kid but it just it it i was in shock for most of the day yesterday and I will not lie to you I had a really rocky night last night I cried at some point I t- it was like a scene from a, a comedy I literally I locked myself in a room I played old music I played the music that I played when I was on my way to the hospital when I was in labor um which was an Eric B and Rakim song from uh what was it one of those songs I played that song I had wine I cried and then I realized I didn't spend a lot of the day with him. (laughs) 
I spent a great deal of time commiserating and just, oh, where is my child? I tried to force him to look at my belly button. I was like, is there any way you can get back in there? You think maybe can you fit? I know he can't fit now, but he belongs with me. He's my person. And it just it 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 is surreal. I just honestly cannot believe that. I have this son who's almost about to start having more growth spurts and facial hair. And I was looking through photo albums last night. I cried. If I had red wine, it would have been hilarious because it would have dribbled all over my face and everything else. But I spent a lot of time yesterday. I didn't even... (laughs) I hugged him a few times, but for the most part, you know, he went out, he hung out with friends, he did his thing. But for the most part, I just sat by myself and I reflected and so this morning I went to the gym and I went harder than I ever did I tried to put an extra because yeah he's not I'm like he's taller than me and he's bigger than me and I don't want to fight him or anything like that but just in case you know I lifted more weights today he's a man there's a man living in my house right now and it's unreal I I just, I'm in complete disbelief. He got a car for his birthday yesterday, and I'm looking at him like, you don't fit in there. I wanted to put a booster seat in it, but I know he's already taller than me. It's just the way. I just cannot get over the fact that in two more years, I'm going to be moving with him to college somewhere, and I'm going to get a whole dorm room <laughs> and sign up to be his RA at the dorm. Like, I, there's no way he's ever getting away from me, ever. You know, arranged marriages and all. Someone that I choose. I really need to stop. I I need to stop doing that to him. But, yeah, that was my day in a nutshell. My son turned 16 and I was a complete wreck. End of story. So, you know, I mean, she's part comedian and and part, like, worrisome mom. So what's what's the scoop of this? Is 16 really the melting point for moms? Jack, do you remember turning oh 16? Oh, my God, yeah. What uh, happened? I don't know. I I think you do stop being a kid, maybe. But it, I think it might happen earlier than that. Maybe mm-hmm. 16 is when you're just kind of confident in your young adultness. Like, I was a monster at 16. Yeah? I mean, I wasn't that bad, but I was, like, worse than I had been before, probably. We're just grown, just getting um, out in the distant, streets? Yeah, just, like, not, you know, like, that's yeah. probably the moment my mom felt like, damn, he's... He's gone. Right, right. Mm-hmm. I remember being 13 and being a real mama's boy. And I remember, like, my mom, because um, I, you know, you all that know me know I have this candle line. I named the first one Aunt Vera's Rolls Royce because my mom's best friend had this Rolls Royce. And all I remember is, like, seeing, like, the taillights of that Rolls Royce, like, leaving our house because they would be going out to, like, have a good time. Mm-hmm. And my sister and I would be home. And, um, you know, not all the time, but my mom had a very active social life. Like, they were really living their best lives. And I remember I used to try to guilt trip my mom into staying home. And I remember one time I was about 13. I went into her closet and, Mom, where are you going? I want you to stay home with me. (laughs) I'm going to be all by myself. I don't have anybody to hang out with. I mean, I was like laying it on. And I knew I was. My mom turned to me. She kind of. She had her makeup done and her hair was in rollers and she was had her like silk uh, robe on and she was ready to get dressed. And she looked at me and she said, you know, OK, if you if you really believe that, if you really think that 
you know, you need me to be here with you tonight, I, I will. But I just want to say that, I mean, how much longer do you think I'm going to be able to really do this? Like, you know, have a good time, feel good, look good, go out with my friends. Like, she's like the age that I am now. Exactly. Dang. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's like somebody telling me to stay home. I'd be like, uh, you got Netflix. <laughs> You got Wi-Fi. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you got no, but it's you know what I said to my mom because I used to cry a lot, and I said, you know what? No, go. You're right. Live your life in that moment. I had that moment at 13, and when I was 16, I'd gotten I got a car. When I was 16, I got a Jaguar. Ooh, yeah, <laughs> and I was really into it. I used to watch it every day. I almost washed the paint off of it. That's how much I would wash it. And my dad. You know, at the time, I was going through kind of a weird phase. I didn't have a lot of friends. Like, I, the kids thought that I had friends, but in my head, I didn't. I was kind of the one that floated between the different groups of friends. Mm -hmm. Later in life, I came to become, you know, somebody that had a lot of attracted friends. You know, that attracted a lot of friend energy when I was grown. But I remember saying to my dad, the uh, auto show was in town, and I got this my Jag, and it was always cleaned up, and I was always making these plans with my dad. And I said, um, I said to him, okay, this weekend, it was a Saturday morning, I think I remember. This weekend, we're going to go to the auto show today, and then tonight I want to go to this movie, and then tomorrow we're going to... And he was like, son, 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 buddy, buddy, you can't plan my schedule like that. Come on, man, you got your own car, like... Go out there and get a life. <laughs> I mean, that's what he said to me. And up to that point, I remember the first time I got strong was at 13 in my mom's closet. And then the second time where it really took, where I wouldn't just go up to my room and cry, was that day standing on the stairs with my dad when I made all these plans with us. And he told me to basically go get a life. And you know what? <laughs> I I took that in and I didn't cry for the first time what? in ever. And I said, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, you're right. And I went upstairs. I took a shower. I didn't even know where I was going. Mm -hmm. But I had like a credit card and I had a couple of bucks. I remember, I, I remember looking at my wallet like, can I afford to go get a life? Oh, yeah, I can, actually. <laughs> Let me take my car, my Jaguar with my gas and my tank. I'm going to take this little. I probably had like 100 bucks. And I said, I'm going to go get a life. And I actually drove into, this, into D.C. And I went to Kramer Books in Afterwards Cafe. And I had like a cup of coffee and, and, and from Kramer's. <laughs> and then I looked at books. And I ended up meeting um, this woman there who became a friend of mine. I actually went out and got a life. You know how people tell you to go get a life? But you actually did that in reality. People tell you to go get a life, but they don't really think you're going to go get a life. But, but something about that resonated to me. So it was interesting hearing this from Shonda because from her perspective, you know, she's a mom that wants to keep her son close to the womb, you know, mm -hmm. close to home, not, not grown and out on his own. Um, I think I had a different experience and I kind of had to decide to go out on my own. So your brother just turned 18 today, Jillian, yeah, right? Yeah. So what's your mom kind of going through? <laughs> she seems kind of 
of chill, actually. Yeah. Like she's like, yeah, I have a grown boy. I still have, I still have my uh, daughter. <laughs> so, happy birthday, Justin. But, How is she doing with you, especially with you doing oh, all these kind of grown-up things? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I remember like hanging out with my friends and everything, and she's just like, hey, next time you go somewhere, just tell me. And I feel like, you know, when you're a teenager. You don't really notice it, but you're moving away from your parents slower and like slowly and slowly. Mm-hmm. And so like everything just is getting, you know, torn away and like teenagers want to move on, you know, with their friends and stuff. Like I like to hang out with my friends at Georgetown. My mom like plans my schedule and everything. Hey, you're going to go um, out with, you know, Nicole or something. It's like, uh, I have plans, mom. <laughs> Yeah. And, um, yeah, I guess just move far away and stuff. So. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Well, I'll tell you, I, um, I can't say how I would be as a, as a father. I am an uncle and, you know, I have three nieces mm. and, uh, 16, 18 and 23 and a 23 year old is pregnant <gasps> and she's about to have a baby. And it's so funny. It's like when I heard that she was pregnant, to me, she's like that child that I remember my sister bringing home from, you know, from the hospital. I'm like, that's my, that's this child. She's a baby. Mm-hmm. But in reality, you know, she's a grown woman and mm-hmm. she gets to make those choices and, and decisions. And of course, now I couldn't be happier for her. But at the time, I was a little shell shocked because to me, she's, she's my baby, mm-hmm. you know? Interesting. So my advice to Shonda is to um, she's raised her son well. She's given him a lot of guidance and she spent a lot of time rearing him up. So he's responsible, you know, still watch over him. Um, I did a segment on Fox 5, I think last year, where I uh, the segment was grown mothers of black sons. And I had Pam Simpson, Donnie Simpson's wife, who's a really good friend of mine. I had Marcia Dyson on. Uh, for some, my mom, I think, was traveling. I don't think she could come in and do it. But, um, you know, I talked about my mom's fear, even with me now, being 41 years old. When I drive somewhere, my mom tells me to call her when I get there. And it gets on my nerves. Yes. It gets on my nerves until I did, until I, I, one day I said, you know what? Whenever things get on my nerves, I said, let me just stop for a second and figure out why is this annoying me? Mm-hmm. Like, what, what is this? Let me see it from the other person's perspective. And when I thought about it, I thought about all the things that happen on the news and, you know, someone's there one moment, they get, there's road rage, there's um, racial profiling, there's all of these things that, that go on. And so I, I wanted to do this segment to get the public involved and when i reach out to pam about her son and marcia about her son they had a very similar story to my mom's you know which is it doesn't matter how old your child is they're still your baby they're still your baby um so he'll always be your baby shonda but just know this is uh, you're getting closer to the time where you can hit the streets with me <laughs> <laughs> Let's play. There you go. That's the yeah. silver lining. Do you know what I'm saying? That's the silver lining in that. Uh-huh. <laughs> 
Play me a little instrumental, Jack, while I thank these sponsors. You know, our show would not be made possible without the support of the Batar Cosmetic Institute. Dr. Batar and his staff are truly the best in the D.C. area for skincare, injectables, and aesthetics. I can't speak highly enough about their medical esthetician Z at the Fairfax location that works with me using hydrotherapy facials, Exilus 360 skin tightening, and cool sculpting for stubborn belly fat. Check them out online at batarinstitute.com and tell them Paul Wharton sent you for $100 off your first service. Metro Offices, the D.C. area's premier co-working space with several locations throughout Maryland, Virginia, and D.C., whether you need a virtual office, meeting space, or a permanent office like me, Metro has you covered. For a tour, call Jonas at the DuPont Circle location at 202-261-3500 or check them out online at metrooffice10.com. Hungry Chefs, do you want to be the office hero? Well, you need to give Hungry a call for all of your catering needs. Hungry has endless variety with over 100 amazing menus created by top chefs in D.C., Philly, and now Atlanta. I'm talking former White House chefs, Food Network stars, and James Beard Award winners. Check them out online at tryhungry.com or call and ask for Taylor and use code Paul Wharton to get 10% off your first order. And don't forget the all-new PaulWhartonStyle.com for all things beauty, fashion, lifestyle, travel, and inspiration. Head on over to PaulWhartonStyle.com and get in on the conversation. Thank you, Jillian. You are fabulous. We'll be watching out for you. Thank you, my homie, Jack. It's always great to hang out with you. So good to see you. (laughs) All right. Now, lunch on Jillian. She's got $10,000. Bye, guys. Full service radio.